<clears throat> this is the last day of this seven-day <clears throat> March-April 2022 session. And I'm going to read again today from this uh, book by Charlotte Joko Beck, book of her talks, entitled Nothing Special, Living Zen. interesting little section entitled Melting Ice Cubes. And she says, it's useful to understand the technical side of practice, the theoretical basis of sitting. But students often dislike technical explanations and want concrete analogies. Sometimes the best way to explain is through simple, <clears throat> even silly metaphors. So I'd like to talk about Zen practice as the way of the ice cube. Let's imagine for a moment that humans are large ice cubes, about two feet along each edge, little heads and spindly feet. This is our life as humans most of the time, running about like ice cubes, bumping into each other sharply. Often we hit each other hard enough to shatter our edges. To protect ourselves, we freeze as hard as we can and hope that when we collide with others, they will shatter before we do. We freeze because we're afraid. Our fear makes us rigid, fixed, and hard, and we create mayhem as we bump into others. Any obstacle or unexpected difficulty is likely to shatter us. <clears throat> Ice cube's bad. She says, ice cubes hurt. Ice cubes have a hard time. When we're hard and rigid, no matter how careful we are, we tend to slip and slide out of control. <clears throat> we have sharp edges that do damage, and we hurt not only our others, but ourselves. Because we're frozen, we have no water to drink, and so we're thirsty all the time. <clears throat> like... Uh, Hockwin's words were like one in water, crying, I thirst. At cocktail parties, <clears throat> I guess that was a thing <laughs> back in her day, at cocktail parties, we soften up a bit and drink. But such drinking is not really satisfying <clears throat> because of our underlying fear, which keeps us frozen and parched. The softening is only temporary and superficial. Underneath, we're still thirsty and yearning for satisfaction. <clears throat> I have a bit of experience with drinking. And, uh, you know, Carl Jung felt that drinking problem with alcohol was a spiritual problem. Uh, the root of Alcoholism often is this dissatisfaction with life the way it is. You could say with life as, as an ice cube. Uh, 
the relief can actually be pretty tremendous. <clears throat> That's where the problems begin. Of course, we have to be <clears throat> we have to be drunk to get that relief. And then our lives go to hell. <clears throat> but really, we're all looking for some way out of that bind, out of that incomplete, rigid, fearful, restrictive, egotistical life. She goes on, some of the more intelligent ice cubes seek other ways out of their miserable lives. Noticing their sharp edges and their difficulties in meeting one another, they'll try to be nice and cooperative. That helps somewhat. Still, an ice cube is an ice cube, and the basic sharpness remains. <clears throat> A lot of people uh, go to great lengths to be compassionate, to be open and generous. But when it's directed by thought, when it's an agenda that we have, it isn't thoroughly genuine. We haven't really softened. We haven't yet really opened up. Take something more than just good intentions. She says, a lucky few, however, may meet an ice cube that is actually melted and become a puddle. What happens if an ice cube meets a puddle? The warmer water in the puddle begins to melt the ice cube. Thirst is less and less of a problem. The ice cube begins to realize that it does not have to be hard, rigid, and cold, that there is another way to be in the world. The ice cube learns to create its own heat by the simple process of observation. The fire of attention begins to melt its hardness. <clears throat> Awareness. Awareness is coming alive, begins to melt its hardness. Observing how it bumps into others and causes hurt, seeing its own sharp edges, the ice cube begins to realize how cold and rigid it has been. A strange thing begins to happen. As ice cubes begin to notice their own activities, to observe their ice cubeness, they become softer and mushier and their understanding grows simply by observing what they are. The results are contagious. Suppose that two ice cubes are married. <clears throat> How's that going to go? Each is protecting itself and trying to change the others, the other. But neither can really change or fix the other, since they are both rigid and hard with sharp edges. If one ice cube begins to melt, however, the other ice cube, if it gets close at all, has to begin to melt also. And it too begins to gain some wisdom and insight. Instead of seeing the other ice cube as the problem, it begins to be aware of its own ice cubeness. <clears throat> Both learn that the witness, the awareness of one's own activity, is like a fire. The fire cannot be stoked by effort. One cannot try to melt oneself. Awareness isn't an effort. Awareness is what's already there. <clears throat> the effort is letting go of everything that blocks it. <clears throat> uh, 
She says, the melting is the work of the witness, which in one sense is nothing at all, and in another sense is everything. Then she goes Christian on us for a moment. Not I, but my Father in me, as Christ said. The awareness, the witness within, is the Father, which is what we truly are. This is helpful if you need a translation into Christianity. It's really, really, this is in every religion, every legitimate religion that's still in touch with its own truth. The awareness is what we truly are. In order to allow the witness to do its work, however, we must not be caught up in stiffening and hardening ourselves, throwing our weight around, bumping into others, and trying to change them. If we do these things, we must be aware so that the witness can do its work. Some ice cubes begin to get the idea and do the necessary work. They may even get a little mushy. The first thing I notice about Zen students who are practicing is that their faces change. They're softer. They laugh differently. They get a little mushy. See the shoulders come down. (laughs) They're easier to hit with the Kiyosaku. (laughs) (laughs) But the work is difficult. And some ice cubes, even as they begin to soften, get sick of the process. They say, I just want to go back to being a comfortable ice cube. True, it's lonely and cold, but at least I didn't feel so much distress. I just don't want to be aware anymore. The truth is, however, that once one softens and becomes a bit mushy, one can't become hard again. You might say that that's one of the laws of ice cubes, with apologies to physics. An ice cube that has become mushy can never forget its mushiness. That's why I say to people, don't practice unless you're ready for the next stage. We can't go back. Joko seems to emphasize a lot the miseries of early practice. It's not always that way for everybody. If you're not miserable, don't worry. (laughs) If you are miserable, don't worry. Once we start to practice, once we're a little mushy, we're a little mushy, and that's that. We may think we can return to life as it was before, and we may even try to do it, but we can't violate the process. The basic law of ice cubes. Once we're a bit mushy, we're forever a bit mushy. Some ice cubes, because they have only a sporadic practice, change only slightly over a lifetime, becoming just a little mushy. Those who truly understand the path and practice diligently, however, actually turn into a puddle. It's the practicing diligently. Not, Not frantically, not greedily, diligently. Think back to Guo Gu, that contentment with where we are, 
that confidence in the method and where we're going. <clears throat> Have the determination to keep going. Not to settle into our old life thinking and scheming, worrying, controlling. Actually turn into a puddle. The funniest thing about such puddles is that as other ice cubes walk through them, these ice cubes begin to melt and get a little mushy. Even if we only melt slightly, others around us soften too. It's a fascinating process. <clears throat> she says, many of my students are mushy. They often hate to go through the process. When we come down to it, however, the work of an ice cube is to melt. When we're still frozen solid, we think that our work is to go around slamming other ice cubes or getting slammed by them. Such a, in such a life, no one ever really meets another. Like bumper cars, we hit and bounce off of each other and then pass on. This reminds me of something that happened to me once. <clears throat> it was in my years of barely ever going to the Zen Center <clears throat> and often drinking. But I went one night and uh, sat for two hours. That was kind of nice. And I was walking back along Park Avenue. Uh, <clears throat> my wife and I and kids lived in a uh, apartment on Oxford Street. And as I'm walking down the street, one of the monitors, somebody who was a monitor at the center, came, uh, was out for a run, I guess, must have gone out for a run right after the sitting. And he came running down the street. I noticed him in the distance, coming closer and closer and closer. And he wasn't slowing down. And so <clears throat> at the last minute, I just turned sideways and planted a foot. And he bounced off of me <laughs> and said, good, good, <laughs> and ran on. And I scratched my head and walked home. <laughs> There was a lot of bumping into each other, I think, back in those days. <clears throat> she says, it's a very lonely and cold life. In fact, what we really want is to melt. We want to be a puddle. Perhaps all that we can say about practice is that we're learning how to melt. At intervals, we say, let me alone, stay away, just let me be an ice cube. Once we started to melt it all, however, we cannot forget. Eventually, what we are as ice cubes is destroyed. But if the ice cube has become a puddle, is it truly destroyed? We could say that it's no longer an ice cube, but its essential self is realized. <clears throat> okay. The comparison of human life to an ice cube is, of course, silly. I see people battering one another, however, hoping that by battering others, something will be gained. It never is. Someone has to stop battering and just sit with being an ice cube. We need to just sit and watch and feel what it's like to be what we are. Really experience that. Really experience it without judgment, without shame, without feeling there's something wrong. 
You have to watch with interest. What's here? What, What am I? What is this? She says, we can't do much about the other ice cubes. In fact, it's not our business to do so. The only thing we can do is more and more to summon the witness. We turn to the witness, we begin to melt. If we melt, other ice cubes do too, little by little. It's perfectly natural to resist the melting, to to want to go back to being frozen, trying to control and manipulate all the other frozen creatures we meet. I never worry about that, she says, because for anyone who's been practicing for a while, there's too much knowing. We can't become rigid again because deep within us, we know something we didn't know before. We can't go back. <clears throat> the next time we speak sharply or complain or try to fix another or analyze them, we're playing the futile ice cube game. Such efforts just don't work. What works is to cultivate the witness, which is always there, though we can't see it if we're busy banging other ice cubes. Even though we may not allow space in our lives for the witness, it's always there. Always sees. Even when we're getting away with things. Even when we're alone and no one else is there. We know. Why? It's who we are. Although we often try to avoid it, we can't. going on as we become softer we find that to be a puddle attracts a lot of other ice cubes sometimes even the puddle would rather be an ice cube more like a puddle the more like a puddle we become the more work there is to be done a puddle acts as a magnet for the ice cubes that want to melt so as we begin to drip more we attract more work to ourselves and that's fine A student asks, could you talk more about how the witness is born? And Joko says, the witness is always there. But as long as an ice cube can't see anything to do except to bump into others or avoid them, it's as though the witness can't function. There has to be a change in the ice cube to allow it to become aware of its own activity. As long as our total awareness is turned to what the other ice cubes are doing, the witness can't appear even though it's always present. as long as we're totally wrapped up in our outward-directed criticism, our comparisons, our complaints. How much we complain. The witness can't appear even though it's always present. When we begin to see, oh, the problem isn't with the other ice cubes, I guess I have to look at myself, the witness automatically appears. We begin to realize that the problem is not out there, it's always here. So much better 
when we can locate the problem here in this body, this body-mind. It's the one thing we can do something about. Student says, in the ice cube state, I can entertain the delusion that nothing can get in and out, so I'm protected. When the mushiness starts, however, then it dawns on me that everything interpenetrates, including pollution, war, hopelessness, and so forth. The insight into this interpenetration can be frightening and discouraging. Could you talk about the fear and the other emotional states that arise when one is between being an ice cube and a puddle? Basically talking about vulnerability. When we're open, we can be easily hurt. We're not armored. Joko says it's true. The intermediary stage of being mushy involves a lot of fear and resistance. In a way, being an ice cube works or seems to work. It's just that the ice cube is lonely and thirsty. When we're mushy, we're more vulnerable to others. If we don't see what's happening, we experience more fear. So that mushy state, which is the beginning of the melting, is always accompanied by resistance, by fear of having the world rush in on us. We want to stiffen ourselves up again because we're beginning to have demands put upon us that we don't know how to handle. The demands may be unwelcome. Our resistance will attempt to solidify itself. Still, the resistance can't last. People sometimes tell me, I've been practicing six months and everything in my life is worse. Before practice, they had the illusion of knowing who they were. Now they are confused and that doesn't feel good. It may feel terrible, but it's absolutely necessary. Unless we recognize this fact, we may become totally discouraged. Practice is sometimes most unpleasant. The idea that everything feels steadily better onward and upward is not true. Nevertheless, as we begin to practice, we also begin to sense something wonderful. We notice a difference. And as we begin to trust, trust the process, see that opening is the only way that makes sense, it's a lot easier to handle those bouts of discouragement. So we begin to be less grasping, less likely to become discouraged. Discouragement always comes from not getting what we want. Begin to realize that you can't always get what you want. But if you try sometime, just might find, get what you need. Going to move on to another uh, talk. We'll leave the ice cubes behind. This one is called Coming to Our Senses. She says, we all desire wholeness. We want to be whole persons. We want a sense of completeness. We want to be at rest in our lives. We try to figure out this problem, to think our way to wholeness, 
And that effort never works. We need a different approach. Suppose we're hiking in the mountains and we sit down by a stream. What would it mean to be whole in this moment? And going back and forth with their students, they paint a picture of sitting by a brook and taking in all the sounds, sensations. Waking up in our presence. Hear the birds, wind moving, sunshine, smells, sit by a stream, sometimes the smell is wonderful. She says, if we're just sitting by the stream and sensing all there is to sense, it's no big deal. We're just sitting there. Suppose, however, we begin to think about our troubles in life. We become absorbed in our thoughts, pouring over how we feel about our problems and what we can do about them, and suddenly we're oblivious to everything we were sensing a moment ago. We no longer see the water, smell the woods, feel our body. Sensations are gone. We have sacrificed our life in this moment in order to think about things that are not present, not real, here and now. The next time you're eating Thanksgiving dinner, or any meal for that matter, ask yourself whether you are truly tasting your food. For most of us, the experience of eating a meal is at best partial. Applies not only to eating, but to walking, to working, to watching TV. How much richer it is when we really, really look, see, and hear, taste, and touch. can have so much more. Without awareness of our sensations, we're not fully alive. Life is unsatisfactory for most people because they are absent from their experience much of the time. If we've been sitting for several years, we do it somewhat less. I don't know anyone who is fully present all of the time, however. We're like the fish that is swimming about, looking for the great ocean of life, yet oblivious to its surroundings. Like the fish, we wonder about the meaning of life, not awake to the water all around us and the ocean that we are. The fish finally met a teacher who understood. The fish asked, what is the great ocean? And the teacher simply laughed. Why? And a bright student says, because the fish was already in the ocean and just didn't realize it. Joko says, yes, the ocean was its life. The teacher just laughed. Reminds me of what Ramana Maharshi said. There is no greater mystery than this, that we keep seeking reality though in fact we are reality. We think that there is something hiding reality and that this must be destroyed before reality is gained. How ridiculous. A day will dawn when you will laugh at your past efforts. That which will be on the day you laugh is also here now.
Separate a fish from water, and there is no life for the fish. Likewise, if we separate ourselves from our life, which is what we see, hear, touch, smell, and so on, we have lost touch with what we are. Our life is always just this life. Our personal commentary on life, all the opinions we have about it, is the cause of our difficulties. We couldn't be upset if we weren't leaving out our life, if we weren't leaving out the hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, the kinesthetic sense of just feeling our body. We couldn't be upset. Why is that? <clears throat> student says, because we're in the present. And Joko says, yes. We can't be upset unless our mind takes us out of the present into unreal thoughts. <clears throat> Whenever we're upset, we're literally out of it. We've left something out. We're like a fish out of water. When we're present, fully aware, we can't have a thought such as, oh, this is such a difficult life. It's so meaningless. If we do that, we've left something out, just like that. <clears throat> Byron Katie calls it a compassionate alarm clock. Anytime we're feeling that anxiety or dissatisfaction or despair, reminder, we're in a dream. And Joko says, a good student recognizes when he or she has drifted away and returns to immediate experience. Sometimes we just shake our head and reestablish the basis of our life, the foundation in experience. Out of that foundation will become, will come perfectly adequate thinking, action, creativity. It's all born in this space of experiencing just letting the senses be open. Takes a while to begin to trust that. She says, when I was 16 or 17 years old, I liked to play Bach chorales on the piano. One that I particularly loved was called In Thine Arms I Rest Me. <clears throat> the translation goes on, foes who would molest me cannot find me here. Though it is from the Christian tradition, which is often dualistic, this chorale is about being, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, is about being present and aware. <clears throat> there is a place of rest in our lives, a place where we must be if we are to function well. This place of resting, the arms of God, if you will, is simply here and now. Seeing, hearing, touching, smelling, tasting our life as it is. I could say also it's not static. We're resting, <clears throat> but we're not frozen. We're not, we're free to move. We're in the middle of change, flowing. And she says we can even add thinking to the list if we understand thinking as simply functional thinking rather than ego thinking based on fear and attachment. Just thinking in the functional sense includes abstract thinking, creative thinking, or planning what we have to do today. <clears throat> Too often, however, we add non-functional ego-based thinking, which gets us in trouble and takes us from the arms of God. A life that works rest on, rests on these six legs, the five senses plus functional thought. When our life rests on these six supports, no problem or upset can reach us.
It's one thing to hear a Dharma talk on these truths, however, and another to live by them. The minute something upsets us, we fly into our heads and try to figure it out. We try to regain our safety by thinking. When we begin practice, for normal people, thinking is option number one. It's where we go to armor ourselves, to protect ourselves, to watch out for ourselves. But there's a shift that happens in practice. And you get to a point where when the threat comes, you're back in your body. Instead of dissociating, instead of getting lost in recriminations, we're here. To reestablish our lives on a secure foundation, we have to return to these six legs of reality over and over and over again. If I have the faintest thought of irritability about anybody, the first thing I do is to begin figuring out in my mind how to fix the sensation. I do not, the first thing I do is not to begin figuring out in my mind how to fix the situation, but simply to ask myself, can I really hear the cars in the alley? When I fully, when we fully establish one sense, such as hearing, we establish them all, since all are functioning in the present moment. Once we reestablish awareness, we see what to do about the situation. An action that arises out of awakened experience is nearly always satisfactory. It works. <clears throat> can simply remember that we're in the room. We're in a room, assuming we're inside. In our body, feel our body. Hear the sound around us. Every room has a tone. Furnace or refrigerator humming. We do that, we rekindle our awareness, that ability we have to see directly, that ability that we cultivate in practice, spend round after round bedeviled by feeling separated from from our practice, from our method. Way in is always this awareness beyond thought. Mind becomes still, things become more vivid. Working on a koan comes to life. The interest grows.
<clears throat> she goes on, you may say that may be true with simple problems, but I doubt that it will work with the big complex problems I face. In fact, however, the process works no matter how big the problem is. We may not get the solution we were looking for, but the and the resolution may not be immediate, but we will see that we will see what step to take next. Over time, we learn to trust the process, to have faith that things will work out as best they can under the circumstances. The person we counted on who didn't come through, the job we failed to get, the physical ailment that worries us, instead of going round and round in our thoughts, worrying about the problem, we reestablish the foundation of our lives in immediate experience we see how to act appropriately. <clears throat> Supposedly, Mark Twain said, I'm an old man and have known many problems, most of which never happened. She says, I'm not suggesting that we should act blindly out of mere impulse. We need to be informed, to know the obvious things about the problem. We need to use our natural intelligence, our functional thinking. For example, suppose I have a twinge in my tooth. If I begin to think of how I hate dental work and drilling and the needles and the discomfort, I'll go round and round in my head and create a huge problem for myself. <clears throat> Many of us have done this. If I return to the foundation of my life, in my direct experience, on the other hand, I'll say to myself, well, it's just a twinge right now. I'll keep an eye on it and go about my business. If the twinge persists or gets worse, I'll call the dentist and make an appointment. <clears throat> With that approach, everything falls into place. And the student says, the danger for me in returning to my ordinary sensations is that I may block out my anxiety or worry, or worry entirely as if it didn't exist. This is a strange thing to say. <clears throat> um, yeah, yeah. Um, it's true that practice can be used to, people do use it to block out things they don't want to look at. <laughs> but if, if you're paying attention to what's there, you're going to notice when you're anxious. You're going to notice the tension. <clears throat> you're going to notice that sick feeling in your stomach. <clears throat> what blocks things out is thoughts. Joko says, anxiety is no more than certain thoughts and an accompanying tension or contraction in the body. Returning to our senses means to notice the thoughts for what they are and be aware of the tension in the body. Awareness of the tension is, after all, just another physical sensation along with seeing, smelling, and the like. It sounds crazy to say that when we have a problem, we should listen to the traffic. But if we truly listen, our other senses come to life too. We feel the contraction in our body too. When we do that, something shifts and how to respond becomes clearer.
And a student says, returning to the senses doesn't always happen quickly with me. If I'm worried about a problem, I may think about it for a week, despite my efforts to pay attention to the traffic or whatever. And that's a, that's a common phenomenon when there's something that's really, really frightening for us. It does invade, invades our sitting. I can remember all my concern about being drafted for the war in Vietnam. <clears throat> I had just come to the center and no longer had my student deferment. one of those problems I worried about that didn't happen. I remember asking Roshi Kaplow about it, <clears throat> and I don't remember what he said. <laughs> I was probably too worried to pay attention. <clears throat> Joko says, yes, depending upon how long and how well we have practiced, the process does take time. The ability to move quickly is the mark of a practice that has gone on for many years. Some people can hold on to their misery for a long time. They really enjoy it. Someone was telling me recently how much she enjoys her self-righteousness. <clears throat> That's a bad one. Nothing more poisonous than self-righteousness. knowing that you're right. Watch out for that. It says, who wants to listen to the traffic when we can enjoy our self-righteousness? We don't want to abandon our patterns, our thoughts of who we are, even when we recognize intellectually that they get us into trouble. So we cling to them and return to them, even after reminding ourselves to come back to our senses. We're not ready to trust the process fully, to have faith in our direct experience. off with Joko back there. Just say a few words about this whole business of awareness and openness. Attention. Some people think that it only applies to somebody who's doing shikantaza or silent illumination. And that koan work means shutting the gate to the senses. But really, it isn't like that at all. The whole ability to open to what's there is the the quality that we need to bring to any kind of practice. It's what we need to close the gap. So many people spend lots and lots of time, just speaking from experience, 
things dull and not quite vivid, uh, mechanical. But when we wake up, when we really let go of trying to make ourselves a certain way, trying to picture things a certain way, when we are open to say, no, let me see how they are. Let me see what it is. Let me look directly. Suddenly there's life. Not always, not reliably like machine work, but there's room to move. We have, we have something to go on. When we know that it's not something that we're creating, looking for what's there. Now that we've all done so many days of Sashin, there is a capacity and ability to be with our practice, to ride through the disappointments and the obstructions, get out of the driver's seat, see what's there. And that continues after Sashin. So important. Just stay here. Stay here. This is our home. It's our true home. Everything we want is here if we'll just open up to it. We have a way of doing that. We have a practice. We have the ability. Everyone. Everyone can do this. Everyone can move in this direction. Just so rewarding for ourselves, so helpful, so rewarding for those we come into contact with. Direct and immediate way to help the world. Keep working. Stop now and recite the four vows.